And with all of that, I'm going to say a word of prayer for us, and then Anne's going to read our scripture today. Uh, and then I'll lead us uh, in God's word and at the and the Lord's Supper. So let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much uh, for uh, the service, Lord. Thank you for the your word that we have already encountered. Thank you for the for the spirit-filled prayer that Jean Sue uh, gave to this church, Lord, uh, reminding us that we are joined with you in this worship and in this fellowship. God, we pray that you'd continue to to, to be with us as as we. Uh, as we commune together at your table, as I as I teach from your word, God, and as Anne reads from your word, may may you meet us in unique and distinct ways in each of these experiences, God, and may you continue to prepare us um, for what you have in store for us today, tomorrow, this week, and the coming months and years ahead, God. We pray all of this and we give it to you now. We we say these things in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Anne. All right. Acts 16, verses 1 through 8. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Amen. Thank you for reading that, Anne. And very excited to uh, get ready to worship with you, Anne. Thank you for um, being willing to, to lead us and to, to help shape this, this worship for this, this community. Um, before I begin, I just want to say that as we acknowledge the land of Hell's Kitchen at the start of each and every service every week, as many of you know, me and Celine and the kids, we've been traveling around Montana the last couple of weeks, and uh, we head back to New York City this Tuesday. So really excited about that. But before I begin, uh, I just want to say that we are in West Yellowstone today, right outside of Yellowstone National Park. And there are 27 native communities that have historic connections to the lands and the resources found within the park and in this area. So let me recognize the Salish, the Kootenai, the Northern Cheyenne, and the many, many other tribes and people that have cared for this land for so long and truly to whom this land belongs. Let me also just say it's great to be preaching, uh, but I, I got to say how grateful I am for the last few weeks to have the chance to sit under some amazing teachers uh, that I, I have learned a lot from, like Susanna Rivera-Leon, uh, Michael Gonzalez, and of course, our very own Rinalda Nicholas. Uh, as we continue walking through the book of Acts, these teachers uh, have kept us close to God's word, and they've guided us toward considering how his word still speaks and convicts today. I've been thinking a lot about uh, Rinalda's um, sermon from last week, her message, and how important it is to not simply view conflict as, uh, well, as conflict, but to see it as an opportunity for us to see God at work and to be used by God in the midst of conflict. 
We saw it with Paul. We saw it with Barnabas. And as Ronaldo showed us, we even saw it with Mark in the passage. And if you didn't get to hear her sermon, uh, I'd really encourage you to check it out on YouTube or on our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, but as much as her sermon and last week's passage focused on this new, uh, somewhat unexpected conflict between Paul and Barnabas, who for quite a while now have been traveling together, ministering together, being persecuted together, as much as the passage was about that conflict last week, as we open chapter 16 this morning, we, we kind of leave it and we turn our attention squarely to Paul and where his journey takes him following leaving Barnabas and Mark. We see Paul continuing his journey. Uh, right away, we're told he came to Derby, then to Lystra. And it's there that, that really, I, I think the meat of this passage sits in Lystra because it is there that Paul meets a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of the Holy Spirit named Timothy. And I've said often in the past, we always want to pay very close attention to what Luke, the author of Acts, what details he gives us. And we're not told much here as he describes this disciple named Timothy We're really not told much about him at all, other than who his mother and father were and that others spoke well of him. He's a disciple. Uh, We know who his parents are and people speak well of him. And without missing a beat, still in the opening verse of the chapter where we find Paul, we're told Timothy's mother was Jewish and a believer and his father was a Greek and apparently not a believer like his wife. It's important to note that, um, that Jewishness in, uh, is seen through the mother's line uh, rather than the father. So Timothy was certainly considered Jewish, even though his father was not, though he probably was looked at differently because his father wasn't, and probably looked differently because for some reason, and a reason we're not told, Timothy was not circumcised as an infant, as Jewish infants would be. And so though he was considered Jewish, not being circumcised and having a Greek father, There's no doubt other Jews likely looked at him with, at the very least, kind of a bit of a a side eye. And so Paul, wanting to take Timothy on his journey, we're told in verse 3 that Paul had Timothy circumcised so that they could minister more easily to the Jews in the area. And this is kind of where most sermons and commentaries uh, either plant themselves or they speed right by Uh, They speed right by because nobody wants to really discuss why Timothy needed to be circumcised, considering all that has taken place in the book of Acts leading up to this point. We've been told Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to receive the Spirit. And yet here is a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who who already follows Christ, who is essentially, you know, we, we can kind of think that he's told he needs to be circumcised. It's difficult to parse that out. So we could just breeze by it and kind of say, oh man, those... Those first century Christians, they were wild, right? Uh, Or if you don't speed right by it, commentators, preachers, we we, we get planted there. But almost always we get planted there from the perspective of Paul. They defend Paul's actions. They enter into the story through the eyes of Paul. He no longer has his partner Barnabas with him. And so Timothy can join him now but only if he's circumcised. Others will argue that Paul was dead wrong, that he shouldn't have done that. And then it just turns into this kind of inside baseball over and over, theologians and scholars arguing about this. But regardless, it's almost always about Paul. But I want us to consider this story through the eyes of Timothy, through the life of Timothy. Now, it's 
Uh, somewhat inaccurate to call Timothy a mixed race individual since the construct of race wasn't around in the first century, but with a Jewish mother and a Greek father, to put it into terms that we use today, he was a disciple of mixed race. He was a disciple who had, at the very least, two earthly allegiances, two citizenships, if you will. Uh, when I started thinking about this story through the eyes of Timothy, and thanks to the work of Dr. Willie James Jennings and his ability to look at the story of Acts from different unexpected angles, uh, I also started thinking about stories and movies <coughs> that have struck me or that have stuck with me where the main character is living a life that has two allegiances. Uh, there's a really fascinating book called No Angel. It's a story about a, a former federal agent who infiltrated the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. Uh, and throughout the story, we see him living a life of two allegiances, one to his family, uh, to his federal job, and the other to the Hells Angels, to his brothers in this motorcycle club. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the story of Donnie Brasco, the true story of Donnie Brasco, the FBI agent who, uh, his real name was Joe Pistone, but uh, the FBI agent who rose to some power within the New York mob. Uh, it was a book, uh, and then it was turned into a movie in 1997 with uh, Johnny Depp and Al Pacino. Seriously, one of my favorite movies. Uh, and it's such a captivating movie because we, the audience, we get to see Johnny Depp's character of Donnie Brasco following his two allegiances. He's trying to be a good husband and a good father, but he's also trying to take down the mafia by any means necessary. And he often forgets who he is. Is he actually Donnie Brasco, the mobster, or is he the FBI agent, the father and the husband? And of course, I know everyone here is familiar with one of the greatest films ever made, The Fast and the Furious. The whole, yeah, that's right. The whole story of the original Fast and Furious movie, uh, number one, I think there's nine now, uh, the first one, uh, it's centered around Brian O'Connor, an LAPD officer who goes undercover to try and take down some illegal street racers. And like the other two examples I've shared, we as the audience, we have the unique perspective to see him living both his lives, working with the LAPD, but also making new friends, falling in love uh, with those who think he's just Brian, not an undercover cop. Now, I'm not trying to say Timothy here in this passage is like an undercover cop, because Timothy's two allegiances are much, 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 much more personal. And they're two allegiances that he didn't have a choice in. He was born without any say to a Jewish mother and to a Greek father. And throughout his life, he has had to contend with what that means for him. I can share examples of books and movies, but I know some of you here this morning, you know what this means very personally too. Some of you considers, consider yourselves to be dual citizens, whether that's uh, you know, legally or not, but quite literally that you were born in one country and you live in another country right now. On a, on a lesser note than that, I think, some of us, myself, certainly have roots outside of New York City, but also consider our roots to be in New York. New York is my home. It's, it has been for 11 years and it's where Quincy and Hugo were born. And, and yet my parents and my siblings are back in the Midwest. And my roots will forever be tied to, to my experiences growing up in a much, much different environment than that of, of Hell's Kitchen. And of course, some of you know deeply what it means to be literally of mixed race, to have a mother and a father from two different cultures and two different backgrounds, and then for you to somehow live a life that, that represents both. 
And all of this, for those of us who claim the Christian faith, all of this then comes together with our allegiance, our devotion to Jesus Christ. And that's where Timothy is when Paul finds him, a man committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, but who is also characterized by his mother's culture as well as as his father's culture. And in his mother's culture, circumcision was the norm. And though we have no idea why he wasn't circumcised as as a baby, here he is presented with the opportunity to do it. Yes, it is at Paul's direction that this takes place, it seems, but it's also Timothy's choice. Just as we saw Barnabas and Paul make their own choices last week, we see Timothy also make a choice this week. A choice to, as as Dr. Jennings puts it, a choice to press deeply into his Jewish flesh, not as an evangelistic ploy or as an acquiescence to assimilation, but out of his commitment to his people, that is, to one of his peoples. But that's not to say that this isn't an act of Timothy following the Spirit. To simply say that, you know, this is Timothy engaging in a cultural norm would lose sight of what it means for Timothy to have the title of disciple that is given to him in this passage. Jennings later says about that, that very thing, he says, Timothy is registering his love for the people to whom God is sending him. Timothy's following the guidance of the Holy Spirit because he knows the Spirit is sending him to minister to many, many men and women who are part of his heritage, part of his culture, his mother's culture. Jennings calls this an act of love, and he calls this existence that Timothy is living in an an in-between existence, partaking in earthly customs as a sign of following a divine and supernatural being. Ministering to people in this life in anticipation for the return of the ascended Jesus Christ that we met in the very opening chapter of Acts. In this in-between existence, as Jennings puts it, love without contradiction is always possible. It is possible for Timothy to love the Gentiles of his father and the Jews of his mother, and with both, and through both, and in both, to perform his commitment to Jesus. Hear that again. It is possible for Timothy to love the Gentiles of his father and the Jews of his mother, and with both, and through both, and in both, to perform his commitment to Jesus. It is a love that we might see as contradicting. It is a love without contradiction. And what does this mean for you and me today? What does this act of love in the first century by a man of Jewish and Greek background say to us today? It means that each of us, that we don't need to worry about contradicting loves in this world if our ultimate love is in Jesus Christ. You see, Timothy is first described as a disciple, and then we're told who his parents are. I don't know if that was intentional by Luke, and I don't know how that has shaped in translations over centuries, But the way that we read it today is that we find out Timothy's a disciple, and then we find out his his heritage. Timothy didn't have to worry about the act of circumcision superseding his love for Christ because nothing could come between him and Christ. So the act of circumcision wasn't meant to earn him any type of salvation, but it was meant to deepen Timothy's love for his Savior and for his Savior's people. It means that here in this church, in this community, that we 
can bring our cultures into this family, that we can bring our languages into this community, that we can bring our loves into this church, that we can bring our different preferences of worship music and styles and customs and whatever. We can bring all of these things and we can enter into them. We can embrace them. We can celebrate them through, as Jennings puts it, through the Holy Spirit deepening our love for the world and for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You, my friends, each of you, each of us, we are not only welcome, but we're invited. We're even expected to be our full selves in this church and in whatever place God has called you. There is no assimilating in God's community and in his family. You might think, well, isn't Timothy assimilating? And I would say, no, he's revolutionizing. I think that's what happens when we look at the story through Paul's eyes. We can quickly assume that Timothy is just doing what he needs to do to integrate himself, to make himself more like the Jews. But when you enter into the story of Timothy, when you put yourself in his place of being a man who has a Jewish believing mother and a Greek father, when you see yourself in his place, then all of a sudden it isn't him simply doing what he needs to do to be more Jewish, but he's uniting. He's bringing together his Jewish and his Greek backgrounds. The culture of an Israelite is now embodied in the flesh of a Gentile. The promise of circumcision that we see in the Old Testament, that it would be a sign of God's people, is now embodied. It is now celebrated by a Gentile. And it is through that embodiment, through that celebration, that Paul and Timothy continue to follow the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit kept them from going to a certain direction. We see that in verse 6 today, that the Holy Spirit kept Paul and his companions from preaching the word in a province of Asia, but that did not deter them, and they continued to follow the Spirit. And in the last verse in today's passage, we find that they traveled to a place called Tros. The Spirit never left them. The Spirit never stopped guiding them. They did what they needed to do to love their neighbors better and to deepen their love for God. And through all of that, the Spirit continued to guide them. My friends, I would say this is an incredible message of hope. What an incredible message of hope that is for the men and women who experienced this story in the first century, who witnessed this. What an incredible message of hope for those who read this story when Luke wrote it, and for us to read it thousands of years later. An incredible message of hope that we know the Holy Spirit that we have been given, that we've seen descend upon this earth in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit we follow today, that the Holy Spirit can meet us in our cultures, in our backgrounds, in our complexities, and can bring us closer to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and that this Spirit will never, ever leave us. Even when the Spirit says, don't go this way, it doesn't leave us. We continue to follow where the Spirit guides. And not only is that a message of incredible hope, but it is a blueprint, I think, for us as a church. What do I mean by that? Let me call upon Dr. Jennings one more time, because when I read this, when I read this, I was so, so encouraged by what God is doing and what God will continue to do here in this church. Jennings says, the church should be the place that suspends the worry of how multiple peoples may coexist together. 
not by avoiding such complexity, but through showing a collective body moving, living, and struggling to form a space of life and love. We don't have a checklist we walk through to make us Christians. We don't change our hair. We don't change the way we speak, the way we worship. God has made each of us, all of us, unique and all of our backgrounds and our walks of life and our ethnicities and our languages and our passions and our talents and our gifts, we move, we live, and we struggle together with all of them forming this community. That's what I see in this passage. And that's what I, I see God doing with this church. And I believe that this is truly an act of reconciliation as we can face all the brokenness of our world the brokenness that exists in our backgrounds and our walks of life and our ethnicities and our languages and the ways people have, 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 have taken control and, and sought power over others, that we can face this brokenness and yet somehow we can be brought closer to one another and closer to God. We can be reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. And the physical, tangible act, I believe, that most beautifully and mysteriously captures this experience, captures this collective, complex body moving, living, and struggling to form a space of life and love is at the Lord's table. We've been doing this now for 30 weeks. Today is week number 30. And we'll continue to do this for as long as Hope Hell's Kitchen exists, virtually, in person, however, because this church is not formed around me, it is not formed around any one tradition or theological perspective. We strive to not have it be focused solely on the importance of a sermon, but this church, this community, this collective body, every single week culminates our existence together. We point ourselves toward the Lord's table because it is at the Lord's table that we remind ourselves of who Jesus Christ is, that he is God incarnate, a God who loves his people so much that he faced wrongful arrest and execution that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he promises to return to this world one day. And as we anticipate this return, we, like Paul and Timothy, we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit to deepen our love for our neighbors and to deepen our love for God. And so we come to this table expectant for all of this. Imagine how expectant Paul and Timothy were. I don't think they thought it'd be another 2,000 years and we'd be sitting here talking about this. They were expectant and anticipating Christ to return. And we too, 2,000 years later, we should be expectant and anticipating Christ to return. And so we follow the Spirit. We follow the Spirit wherever the Spirit leads us. And we make choices to deepen our love for our neighbors, to serve our neighbors better as it brings us closer to Jesus Christ. And we come to this table expectant for all of this. For the next few moments, as we, as we do each week, we take some time to pause and consider how God might be speaking to us this morning. And we offer up our own prayers, our own questions, maybe our own repentance as you felt convicted by God's word today. To God, we offer these things to God as we get ready to commune together at the Lord's table. So take this as a time, as an opportunity to prepare yourself, to prepare ourselves for the table. We'll just take a, a moment of silence and we'll come back. <laughs> 